Welcome to another episode of 42 to Doomsday. My name's Rob. And my name's Mark. And in this episode, we answer our critics and give our thoughts on the top five things we like about the new series, whether we like it or not. So since our last podcast went out, Rob, Season 8 is well underway, and the first two episodes have cometh and goneth. So far, has Season 8 lived up to your expectations? I've really, really enjoyed Capaldi's performance. Well, the performance is coming for a bit of criticism because it's too... There's the impression out there that it's a little bit too nasty and a, a little bit too abrasive, but I think it's a welcome change from, uh, say, Matt Smith's. Not, you know, because I didn't like Matt Smith's portrayal particularly. It's a contrast, isn't it? It is a contrast. And I think with a role like this, you need the contrast. Otherwise, it's just same, same, you know, year in, year out. And I, th- I think it, I think Capaldi's uh, character or the character he's portraying is working really well. I'm a little less certain about the uh, the style of stories that we're getting at the moment. I sort of said uh, in a previous podcast that I hope that the stories would, the type of stories that we would get would, would shift and move to sort of suit uh, Capaldi's portrayal. I'm not entirely sure that we're getting that. I think Deep Breath, to be honest, I thought Deep Breath was too long and there were too many elements, i.e. the Paternoster gang, that were in the way of the story. I think it could have been a better story at 60 minutes instead of 80. Um, and Into the Dalek. Initially, I was pretty negative on Into the Dalek. Then I watched it again, and uh, I it grew on me more. Initially, when I watched it, it was a retread of you know previous ideas, you know other movies like Fantastic Voyage. Uh, I think they were you know they were going over all ground that was covered in Dalek in, in Chris Eccleston's uh, first uh, series, and I didn't think that the supporting cast were up to much scratch. And I, I had a lot of criticisms about Phil Ford's script. I thought again it was derivative, uh, and sort of you know it was just sort of dancing around. On on viewing it again last night uh, at around midnight, and admittedly I fell asleep <laughs> about three quarters of the way through, but. The couch was very comfortable. Um, I did actually get a lot more out of it. I picked up on the theme uh, a bit more, or much more actually, and I the the, the, the acting uh, seemed to have improved uh, with the passage of a couple of days. So uh, on the whole, I think it's been a relatively strong debut. Uh, I'm glad now that uh, Capaldi is well into his stride. The standout of the new series is his performance, and I'm really glad to see that Jenna Coleman has been given more to work with. Yes, uh, very much so. I mean, what do you what have you thought about the first two episodes? Well, I had the uh, pleasure of going to see Deep Breath in a cinema. The first thing that surprised me was how well attended the session was because a it was twenty five dollars a ticket. Uh, admittedly, we were seeing it on the one of the biggest screens in the Southern Hemisphere, and the episode had been out at four fifty in the morning. Uh, it was on iView, which is the uh, ABC's equivalent of the iPlayer. So it was quite readily available, but the cinema was really packed out. So I went in there to watch it as a group experience, and I I enjoyed it. The interesting thing was when um, Matt Smith came on, I heard these crying noises, and I turned to my mate and I thought he was crying, but it wasn't him, it was these girls in the front of me, and they were crying, and one of them turned (laughs) turned to the other one and said, oh, I I really miss him, and couldn't stop crying for the uh, rest of the episode. So that's my main 
abiding memory of deep breath. I think she needed to take a deep breath after after watching it. How did you uh, think the experience compared with watching Day of the Doctor in the cinema? Was it largely the same sort of thing? No, it was a different vibe. With Day of the Doctor, I saw it at the BFI, so I was... Oh, BFI? Yeah. You need to go back and listen to our 50th anniversary Smorgasbord uh, podcast, Rob. That's, I will, I will. Yeah, have a listen to that. When I saw that there, it was more of a party vibe. There was obviously stars in attendance as well, so sort of getting buzzed on that. It was a whole different experience. But uh, I've really taken to Capaldi early on. It's a really interesting performance. I get the feeling that poor old Colin Baker sitting at home watching him going, oh... We sure did it like that. Well, I think a lot of people or a number of people have, have commented on that, that this is what the production team are doing now is what they attempted to do back in 1985. Yeah, and or sadly, four. What was it, four? Yeah, with Twin, Twin apologies. Dilemma. Yeah, that's okay. And they failed. They failed miserably, didn't they? they yeah. No one was on the same page, hmm. really. Sayward and Nathan Turner and Colin Baker weren't working in sync. And you can tell now that... Uh, Moffat and Capaldi and everyone else around them um, are working to get that right. I've heard criticisms of Capaldi's performance that it's hard to get into because he's so harsh and abrasive. But I, I'm seeing I'm seeing that, but I'm also seeing some warmth there as well. Yes. I mean, I mean, the the first well, I suppose forty minutes of deep breath uh, dragged for me because Capaldi wasn't really as a character as the twelfth Doctor. Or is it the thirteenth Doctor? Oh, keep going, keep moving. <laughs> keep, keep moving. <laughs> he uh, he was getting it together. You know, it's mm. the, it's the it's the now standard post regeneration fugue where the Doctor isn't quite sure who he is or where he is or why he is. Mm. But by that restaurant scene, everything seemed to have clicked. For, for, for well, everything was clicking for the for the twelfth Doctor. And it was that 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 scene is a standout so far in the uh, in the first two episodes for me. Hmm. Uh, and you know, I can see that going on, there will be injections of warmth. The Doctor is questioning himself. Yeah, he asks Clara in uh, in into the Dalek, "Am I a good man?" Which is an indication that the, you know he's just not merely an arrogant character speaking harshly to everyone else. But he is capable of introspection. He does recognise that perhaps he is too abrasive, hmm. and he's looking for outside. Uh, not advice, but outside insight into you know how he's coming across effectively, and I'm sure as the season progresses, we'll see uh, a warming of the character. I don't think he'll be someone who'll be you know huggable or cuddly, but there'll be a nice mix and match and contrast between the straight talking Doctor that is the Capaldi uh, incarnation and something more approachable, so that you know the fangirls in the cinema at the end of his tenure, can cry when he goes. I think I'll be crying when he I'll, goes. I'm really enjoying his performance. It's really fantastic. And yes. I suppose we should a little we should touch a little bit on Jenna Coleman as well, as I said before. It just out of the blue, out of the clear blue sky, she's, you know, a really... I'm, I'm really warming to her character much, much more than I did uh, in the previous season. I mean, how have you felt about it? I don't know whether it's a change in writing, because I don't think it is. She, her interplay with Capaldi just seems to be... It's a different dynamic, mm-hmm. and it's a more interesting dynamic. The only thing that annoys me is that this whole dropping her off and picking her up part of the narrative I think it's quite disruptive get in the blue box keep going don't stop that's what I want to see out of it more now than uh, this whole we'll drop it back to earth do a couple of weeks on substitute teaching and then get the help out of there I think that sort of disrupts it but um, just her whole performance is lifted and I think it's because of that different obviously that different interplay with Capaldi than what she had with Matt Smith where her and Matt Smith were very similar ages 
And this one is obviously because he's a slightly older doctor. I'm being very kind in terms of the, slightly the, you older. Know, the scary thing is, Mark, that he's only about 13 or 14 years older than both of us. I'm looking at Capaldi and I'm looking into the future. I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> He's so uh, skinny, isn't he? His costume or his clothes. mm. He wears them so well. You know, for a 56-year-old, I've seen a couple of 56-year-olds around the shopping centres here, and I tell you what, they'd be lucky to fit fit into anything. They've already got one foot in the grave, some of of the people that you see around at at that age. But I I have noticed in a couple of scenes where he's been running down corridors, he's he's doing that panting acting that, (laughs) you know, I'm puffed out, but I'm expected to pump out these lines. The work print didn't have the guy bringing out the respirator in the shots. I couldn't see that there. Something with the paddles and ready yeah. to scream out clear this sounds clear get him back in <laughs> the only thing about deep breath i sort of i noticed was that it didn't have that freshness or energy that the 11th hour seemed to have i mean obviously the, the victorian setting and the, the gloomy surrounds didn't obviously help but i mean look it worked as a, as a season open it was fine well i mean it was all intended to actually make the audience like capaldi make the audience you know accept capaldi that's mm. that's the whole raison d'etre of that episode is Matt Smith is gone, but, you know, he, we're going to hit you over the head with Madame Vastra's comments about, you know, uh, uh, Clara's inability to come to terms with it. And then let's wheel out Matt Smith once again. And basically, he's talking to Clara, but really he's addressing the audience. Mm. You know, love me, love him. It's all the same thing. Get on board, everyone. Hmm. No wonder your fangirl in front of you was weeping like a little girl. But, uh... Well, she did when I threw the rest of my ice cream at her. <laughs> what do you think about the developing arc? The one that's got a really big signpost on it saying, I'm a soldier, and yes. I don't like soldiers. And does that link in with uh, the, the sort of uh, you know heaven and paradise and, and Missy? The Missy one, I don't know how it's going to pan out. I'm actually quite intrigued about it. I was laughing, though, in deep breath when she's talking about paradise and she's you know waltzing around the place. And you look around it, and the place is... It's all wet. It's just a shower on it. If it's paradise, it would be completely dry and sunny, but the place is completely wet. Maybe God turns on a, a morning... Sh- just a morning shower, just to freshen the place up, and then the sun comes up and dries everything out. It's rather lovely. What about you? I'm just going to say, I'm heartily sick of the idea of an arc story. Heartily sick of it. Missy, mistress, master, if she's a female master... Riley. Fantastic, great. Love it, Moffat, you know, just... You just work out, work through these issues you've got in your head. Just work them out onto the page, son. Just do what you want. I'm not looking forward to the last two episodes because we're going to get this Missy arc thing just seeded through the the whole, you know, the rest of the series, and then we're going to burn two episodes at the end of the series resolving it. You know, just tell a bloody story each and every week, and don't, you know, don't load us up with this rubbish. <laughs> We've been here. Seen that? What do we have to have it for? Why? Do people expect it now? Well, people need to change their expectations. Like the show is capable of change. I mean, this is the thing we were saying before. Um, I'm getting angry. I should calm down. This is the thing we were saying before. You know, with Capaldi, hopefully the the type of stories change. Have the stories really changed? I don't think they've changed enough. And yet, we're st- and we're also still keeping the same sort of format. I mean, you know, what's the problem? You know, be adventurous, change. He's just changed it to an older actor, so he probably thinks in his in his mind he is being adventurous. Let's go back to Deep Breath for a second. Opening titles. What did you think? I, I mean, I don't mind the visuals. It, it, it is hitting you over the head, as other people have said, that this is a show about time travel. There's clocks and dials and, you know, mm. gears and stuff like that. So that's nice. I'd like the music to come in with more of a crash, more of an oomph, like you got with the uh, Davison theme music, which I mm. love. I think it's the best rendition of, of the uh, of the theme. Beating even the original? Uh, look, the original stands up as a, as, a, as a groundbreaking piece of, you know, electronic music. There's no doubting that. 
but my music tastes run towards the popular, sadly, and I find that uh, the breakneck speed of the Davison theme more appeals to my sensibilities than anything else. But mm. I, you know, I hand hand on heart, I, you know, the uh, the Hartnell um, theme is is a great piece of you know landmark you know music. But uh, what did you think? I mean, what did you think about the the, the titles? I thought it was great how they got Yoko Ono to sing on them. Screeching Banshee. The titles are okay, but the theme music I thought was woeful. Well, we may warm to it. I doubt it very I much. I doubt it. Hoping that they change it again. I mean, I, they had they had the new Matt Smith. That was titles. fine. I would have kept. They were quite kept, good. Yeah, I would have kept that personally. Murray Gold, go back again and you know just do it again. It's thin. It is like <laughs> it is like a, a banshee whale. Um, and uh, it doesn't serve the titles as well as it could, really. I wouldn't be getting Murray Gold to do the title music. I'd change the locks. I'd have someone else do the music, yeah, for goodness give, sake. Give somebody else He's a go. been with the show for almost 10 years. That's amazing. I suppose it gives a unity of effect to all the episodes, but, you know, if we change writers and we change directors, can't we change the person who does the music? Well, you already mentioned the Panelost again. We don't need to mention them again, do we? Well, only in the sense that I hope to God that they never come back again. I mean, full credit for Moffat creating a an all-girl band, effectively, <laughs> with... With Strax being a neuter, uh, and you know you've got two strong female leads, which is great because that sort of answers ish the, the the questions against or the points against Moffat that he's he doesn't write females particularly well. I felt actually uncomfortable with the sort of the way that Vastra was treating Jenny as if she was a sexual object. I mean that posing thing. And also when Jenny says, well, you know, um, if this is just a pose for the people outside, why am I still serving you your tea and biscuits? I felt a little bit uncomfortable about that, but I mean, I'm not going to, you know, harp on it. It's just, it's just one of those things that I picked up on. Uh, and Strax needs to be thrown into a volcano. <laughs> just do it now. My God. <laughs> Jenny and Madame Vastra have got very poor memories because they had to keep reminding each other they were married every three minutes. Did you uh, notice that, did you? Yeah, even my wife noticed it. She goes, why do they keep reminding us? I said, well, you know, maybe they've got amnesia. But uh, yes, uh, comedy's on Taran. Every time you're getting into the plot, he just comes along and wrecks it, doesn't he, really? The medical scene with uh, with Clara, which was three minutes of just dead time, basically. That was just a waste. Yeah. Strax must be the bottom of the Sontaran cloning pool, really. Because if he's a nurse, how would you not know the difference between a boy and a girl? I mean, Lynx knew it, Stein knew it. So what's the problem? Strax? If you're, if you're cloning Sontaran, by the billions why uh, do you need a nurse because as soon as one is injured you just push it off and you know replace it with another one from the clone banks Mm. Why are we discussing this? <laughs> anyway, everybody knows our, our love for the Panonosta gang and Strax but, uh, in particular. Look, let's face so... facts. Yeah, uh, the consolidated ratings came out in the last day or so. Nine oh. million people watched it over the over the course of the week with uh, you know on the evening and various internet platforms, etc., uh, etc. Et what about the Dalek episode? Uh, I think it got about 5.2 in the overnights. Ooh, okay. As if I know what I'm talking about. But that'll pick up another couple of million. Yes, uh, yes. And it is up against X Factor. The Dalek episode, our views changed from my initial uh, disgust at it when I watched the work print to actually thinking it's not that bad. It's been getting rave reviews on other podcasts and uh, other online reviews. Is there something that we're missing? Well, well obviously. I mean, mm. I, I mean, on my first viewing, I was appalled by it. I thought it was low rent, lowest common denominator, poorly scripted, poorly acted, only dragged up from uh, the bottom of the barrel by, by Capaldi's performance. Mm. Uh, as I said earlier, I mean, they're just picking up on the same themes from Dalek, uh, you know, as Doctor Who does, steals from the best in terms of you know the idea from Fantastic Voyage or even Inner Space. Mm. I heard mention mention of that in the last couple of days. 
Um, it's just hard to pick up on. I think that the supporting cast were reasonably thinly drawn. Um, the the idea that they were going into the Dalek, I suppose, is sort of interesting, but poorly executed. They were basically running around, it seems like, a warehouse hmm. with CGI elements plugged in later. Um, and I, I thought that Capaldi's acting against the green screen left, uh, in that instance, a lot to be desired. And I thought that... And you hear this from other actors that they do in movies and TV where they're you know, forced to act against a green screen, it's just very difficult to do so. I mean, I, I think we saw that with Matt Smith in The Rings of Akatan, where he's effectively yelling at a green screen, which was later superimposed by a glowing pumpkin. Uh, and it, it just was completely overwrought and didn't sort of match the material. Mm. You talk about the scene where he's uh, showing the Dalek his mind. Yes. That was bizarre. I thought that was pants, that whole <laughs> scene bit of psychedelia from the 70s there it's oh, it very just, strange it worked better on the second viewing but uh i've actually made the decision not to seek out any more work prints i'm actually going to watch them as they're intended to be the coming soon trailer for next week really whetted my appetite and for the first time in ages i'm actually really looking forward to seeing what uh, comes along next week yeah i'm looking forward to it's robots of sherwood isn't it this yeah episode. yeah i think mark gaddis uh sometimes gets a bit of stick for his writing, but I think uh, with the Crimson uh, Horror and... Uh, Cold War? Uh, yes, that one. Uh, he's picked up his game. Oh, his game is picked up. And uh, I'm looking... I mean, I think from what I've seen or what I've heard, Robots of Sherwood is uh, is, a, is, a, is a comedy, is a, is a bit of a lighthearted romp. So given his comedy writing chops, uh, I'm really looking forward to that. So, uh, I mean, I, when I heard about it last year... I, my eyes rolled and I groaned. I thought, what the hell are they doing? But I'm, uh, as always, I sort of jumped to conclusions a bit too rapidly. And uh, I'm looking forward to it very much. So, Mark, rightly or wrongly, uh, we've been perceived as being anti the new series. However, nothing could be further from the truth. For the 100th episode of the Blue Box podcast, we set the team a challenge to list the top five positive things a certain ex-script editor whose initials start with Eric Sayward, did on the program during the 1980s. We now turn the challenge on ourselves and discuss the top five things we like about the new series. This will be the shortest podcast ever, Rob. <laughs> 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 All right, Mark. So uh, why don't you lead off with your, if you want to go from five to one, what's your fifth most uh, impressive happy moment with the new series? Number five. My number five entry into this uh, discussion, Rob, is... The casting of uh, four great and diverse actors into the role. We've had the casting of two known actors, uh, Eccleston and uh, Capaldi, coupled with Tennant, who was slowly on the rise uh, before he got the role, and Smith, who was a complete unknown. And all four of those actors have given uh, diverse interpretations of the main character. On the negative side, though, the Doctors have had a high turnover rate in the new series. In the 1970s, we only had two Doctors, really, for that whole time period. Where in the new series, we've actually gone through four, was it four and a half? Was it four and three quarters? I can't really remember or mm. decide. <laughs> but we've had a rapid turnover. I think the, the actors and the casting for the new series in terms of title role has been absolutely spot on. And what's interesting is that two of those four actors weren't fans of the show at all, which is all the more impressive, I suppose. I mean, you don't necessarily want a fan of the show because then you worry that they're trying to pay homage to previous interpretations. But with Eccleston and Matt Smith, uh, I think that freed them up to 
give their own unique interpretation or as much as they could within the constraints of the writing and, and the production team what they wanted mm. so um yeah you, you're right i mean it, it just goes to show that britain may be a small country but it does punch above its weight in terms of its acting talent i mean it always has and and, and we've seen that with uh, with the four uh, actors that you've named and I, we've, in a sense, we've been blessed. I mean, we can we can talk about sort of the, the negative aspects of some of, of some of their stories and the sort of the story types that we've been getting, but that's more of a production thing. But in terms of the actors, yeah, you're right, absolutely. That we've we've had four high quality actors giving really different and unique performances in the main. Do you think Tennant and Capaldi are sort of hamstrung in a way because they have the fan baggage uh well i don't see um so far i'm not seeing capaldi hamstrung at all no. I, I think he's giving his own unique spin on it and i, I remember when we uh, we talked about capaldi's casting in one of our earliest podcasts we were really looking forward to his um to what he was going to bring to the table because he had that breadth and length of experience that, you know, you didn't really know what he was going to bring to the performance, but you knew he was going to bring something impressive. I've read that perhaps Tennant's portrayal, he was t- attempting to channel Tom Baker, and it didn't really come through. There there are aspects of Tennant's portrayal that I'm not 100% on. I But see, it's hard to work out whether that is a conscious acting decision by the actor or whether it's 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 a group decision by, you know, say, RTD, and 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 tenant and and the director this is how you're going to play this particular scene i mean i like my actors a bit more introspective and not you know laugh out funny and all that sort of thing it just i suppose it just depends on what the episode is asking for and sometimes i felt that tenant's performance was a bit too mainstream a bit too popular Mm. Uh, and you know undeniably he's a he's a very he's probably the, the most popular actor to play the role since the series came back i mean the numbers show that and the, the affection uh, it can be clearly seen i sometimes felt that he because he was a fan he may have felt that he needed to play the role in a particular way and uh, it limited him in what he was sort of able to bring but I, that just made me think it's interesting some of the the other podcasts i've been listening to said you know capaldi is channeling a bit of Colin Baker, a bit of Tom Baker. Why can't he just be doing what Capaldi wants to do without having fans trying to self-reference past Doctors into the performance? Capaldi is doing something that's completely different. And same with Tennant as well, to a point. I suppose some people, some fans look for a shorthand way of uh, expressing what they feel about the performance. So, I mean, they look back to the show and they go, well, you know, there's, there's elements of Baker and there's elements of the other Baker in that performance. And it's just a shorthand way of saying... He's giving a nuanced performance, uh, and it, we're really impressed by it. And uh, it is it is a harder edge than what we're seeing before. Um, and that's they're just saying, well, tenant. They're saying it's 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 Colin Baker done right. It's Tom Baker for the twenty first century. But um, yeah, no, you're right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it's uh, let Capaldi be Capaldi. That's right, and let Tennant be Tennant, and let Smith be Smith, and let Eccleston just do one year. <laughs> And we're not going to mention John Hurt because I don't want you blowing up again. So that was my number five, Rob. What about yours? Well, my number five uh, goes all the way back to before Rose was uh, screened in the UK. Uh, I was trawling through uh, what used to be known as uh, Outpost Gallifrey. And someone on one of the forums mentioned that Rose had leaked onto the internet. Oh. And the whole whole idea of a television episode leaking onto the internet was, was completely mind-boggling. I, and on my 28.8... Uh, KBP <laughs> download speed. It was a complete impossibility. 
However, I did have a friend who's, uh, I have a friend who is far, far more tech savvy than myself and put him in touch with the uh, information about how to download Rose. And um, so all of us, there's, there's a group of us who've known each other for 20 you know, odd years. And uh, we all found ourselves in the rather unique position of knowing someone who had a copy of Rose. And suddenly we found ourselves in our cars that afternoon on our way to our friend's place on the other side of, uh, of Melbourne. And what I found myself doing for the first time was sitting down and watching Doctor Who in a group setting. Before that, I'd, you know, I'd watched it on my own. There was no one in my family who was remotely interested in the show. Uh, and even when I was attending meetings uh, here in Melbourne at the Doctor Who Club of Victoria, the last thing I wanted to do was sit in a room with a bunch of complete strangers watching Doctor Who on the telly. And I could be standing out the front uh, with my, uh, my, my mates talking about everything other than Doctor Who. But here I was in 2005 at my friend's place with five or six other friends uh, ogling Rose, the episode, not Rose the character. And it just, and, and, and in the years since, it's brought, uh, that incident brings has brought home to me that Doctor Who is now as much a, a community. A collective experience, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Whether it's people going to the cinema and watching it, mm. or whether it's you know friends gathering around and, and watching Doctor Who, or whether it's people live tweeting or live blogging uh, an episode as it goes out. Doctor Who, for me anyway, more than anything else, is really a collective experience. Number four. Mark, what's your number four? My number four is actually for the show's ability to regain BBC's organisational respect back, and also, you can say more cynically, uh, BBC Worldwide respect back, because they've actually realised how much cash can be made from it. And it's just really pleasing to see uh, the BBC's, it's now considered their flagship enterprise, and also it's one of their biggest exports as well. As we discussed in the last podcast, it's gone around the world. Now, we remember a time when the show wasn't entirely supported by the organization that made it especially in the mid to late 80s and to see this massive turnaround very pleasing to see i mean we also got to remember in 2004 i think when the show was about to kick off pre-production michael gray came back to the organization and was asking the questions why do we need to bring it back you know can you cancel it again and and luckily um they said no it's too late to, to stop that so you know, and you have to remember when the show was cancelled, there was a, such a high level of disdain within the organisation for it that it took years for the people who were in those positions of power to sort of either leave the organisations or for their careers to basically wither on a vine and die. And it took other people to come into the organisation or work their way up who had got fond memories of the show and say to themselves, you know what, there's a gap in the schedules, what can we fill it with? Oh, Doctor Who. That has been, to me, been a very pleasing thing to see. It's almost an organisational love now, isn't it, towards it? The show has got its self-respect back and it has a certain swagger, doesn't it? I mean, I can't think of any other TV shows that warrant a worldwide trip and launch, uh, you know, as we saw in the last few weeks. Mm. It it is, as you say, a flagship show for the BBC and and the BBC positioning itself and proclaiming itself as a as a generator of, of content that appeals around the world now. Yeah. It's, you know, it's... The, the, in, in diplomacy, they talk about hard power and soft power, and hard power is your military, and soft power is your ability, a nation's ability to, to sell itself positively to the world. And the BBC, through shows like Doctor Who, is a, is a wonderful example of that soft power, where in effectively what is, an, and no offence, an alien culture like, like South Korea, 
Doctor Who is wildly, well, appears to be wildly popular, and that gives positive impressions about not only about the show, but about the BBC and about Britain. So it's That's Britain's, right. it's Britain selling itself to the world through the prism of Doctor Who, mm. which as you as we, I mean, we constantly go back to the mid '80s, where it, I mean, it was really a scarifying period if you're if you're a fan, absolutely, uh, to, yeah. to see the show unloved, discarded in the waste bin of uh, television history, and to now t- have been turned around. And to be what it is today, mm. it's uh, it's just remarkable, and it's uh, you know, I mean, and we can always uh, talk about some of the negative aspects of the show and all that sort of thing, but really, it 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 is a show that brings a lot of joy and entertainment to millions of people. I love watching the, the classic series DVDs with the talk about the mid '80s and the cancellation. You had Peter Cushing on there, and had Jonathan Powell, all trying to backtrack now, saying, "Oh, we couldn't find anybody else to do it." Do you know what? You didn't look hard enough and you didn't try hard enough and you just didn't care. And where are you now, boys? Where are you now? So what about you, Rob? What's your number four? Well, my uh, number four is... I think it's a key moment in the new series uh, short history with the handing of the baton from Russell T Davies to Stephen Moffat. Now, you had the, the chance that these two wildly different writers... Uh, with Stephen Moffat coming in, that in, 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 in doing the handover and handing it over to a completely different writer with a completely different approach to writing and storytelling, that changeover could have been fumbled really badly and the show could have suffered as a consequence. Um, Russell T Davies, I think as we... Well, I, I would regard him as a, a populist writer, a, a, a man who's prepared to write the show with a broad... Uh, broad uh, viewership in mind. I mean, you can see that with the sort of, you know, the, the soapy aspects of the show and its constant uh, return to modern day Britain, for instance. And that was very, I mean, that's very popular, Has was very popular at that time. And so you get Stephen Moffat, who is a completely different writer, obviously a writer with, with ability, but who takes a different approach to his stories, who takes a different approach to constructing his plots, and who takes a different approach to uh, his characters. And you actually had another fan taking over, but with a different approach, I suppose. So there was the chance that in that handover, um, the show could have lost its way. And it's credit to, I think, Stephen Moffat that, I mean, I, th- I think he had actually some time to work up to being to t- taking it over. I think during that, that year where they had the specials, uh, I think that Stephen Moffat was working and preparing and laying the groundwork in the background. But regardless of that, I mean, the, the, the key first decision that he made was on the choice of the new actor to replace Tennant. And at the time when Matt Smith was announced, I was standing on my rooftop shrieking to the neighbourhood going, what in God's <laughs> name have they done? They've got someone who is 15 years younger than me. And it is ageism on my part because I see you know people of, of similar ages and younger in, in my community, and honestly, I'd rather put them in a barrel and throw them over the Niagara Falls because some of them just, just drive me mad. And I was unfair. <laughs> and hello you know, if you're I listening. Had, <laughs> yeah, hello to you all who are listening. And I unfairly maligned Matt Smith, and I thought, no, this is going to be a disaster. And I was, I am, as usual, very happy to, to be wrong. Stephen Moffat says that you know they were looking for an older actor, and then Matt Smith came in, and he wowed them. He wowed them completely. And to, to Moffat's credit... He showed flexibility and, 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 and turned around his view and said, no, we have to have this one. We have to have this man, this actor, because he will take the show in the direction that we, we believe it needs to go. Mm. So my top four is, you know, Stephen Moffat coming in, taking the ball, not fumbling it, 
and carrying the show on and leading it off in a, in a new storytelling direction. Um, the, the show under Stephen Moffat is a little bit inward looking. He's prepared to acknowledge the past a bit more than I think Davies was. It is a more self-referential series, but I don't think it's too... Um, to, that's had an overly negative effect on certainly the popularity of the show. I mean, the ratings, as we as we see, have have remained basically constant over the last uh, since since Stephen Moffat came. Hmm. So I think that uh, him coming on board is definitely uh, in my top five. No matter what we say about his arc engineering, yeah, I am a hypocrite. I know I bag him, but uh, <laughs> we I both mean, bag him. So but I mean, you've got you've got to you've got to look at the trend instead of just individual blips. And yeah. look, he's a he's a strong writer. Sometimes it doesn't appeal to me, but then you know, not everything that in the in the new series appeals to me. Mm. Not everything in the in the in the classic series appeals to me. No, but you can't you can't deny that he has worked really hard to build on the success of the RTD years, mm. and you hope that when he goes, whenever that is, that he that his successor is given the same opportunity as he is to build up and build up and then given a chance to put his stamp on the show. Number three. So, Mark, what's your third top uh, moment in the new series? Well, you actually just touched on uh, touched on that in your number four. By the way, we haven't actually swapped notes in terms of what uh, our lists are. I actually really like how the, the new series has embraced the show's past when it easily could have gone down the reboot path. For Eccleston's first series, there were slight references to the past because I think they were very unsure in terms of where the show uh, would it continue, where it was going, but also didn't want to bog it down in continuity like the TV movie had done. As you said, as, as the show has progressed, it's been able to dip back in into its history and really show a lot of love towards it. Can you just imagine if the BBC said, yeah, we're bringing Doctor Who back. Um, we're starting, Eccleston's coming in as Doctor number one. We're not tying it back to the old series because we consider it hokey and things like that. We would have been an uproar about we, it. We would have been an uproar, but it still would have rated 11. And it a still would have rated paper. it, but I suppose to bridge that gap between classic and, and the new series, I think it's been great how it's now combined it all together. And as a result, a lot of new series uh, fans are going back and having a look at the classic series. At the time that the new series, or when people were talking about if the show came back, um, it would have to go back to first principles. It would have to... You know, remove the, the sort of the barnacles of the past. You know, the, the continuity aspects that have grown layer upon layer upon layer upon the show. It would just need to be an alien with a time-traveling police box who had adventures. And while that has some validity, I suppose, in hindsight, I think it would have been almost disenfranchising had the show rebooted itself. Basically, mm. you would have had a whole yeah, a couple of generations of people who had a great deal of love for the show. And, you know, a, a, a percentage of that who had a, a lot of emotional investment in it. And, I mean, I know for myself, I would have, I would have felt sad that the show basically started again from, from, from ground zero mm. when it, you know, really wouldn't have needed to do that at all. I mean, as you say, the first series, there are elements where they... I mean, a lot of them are just sort of visual elements. Yeah. I mean, the Cyberman head in Van Stratton's um, collection in Dalek, for instance. And there's mentions of Gallifrey and, and Time Lords and stuff like that, but not so much that they bog the narrative down. All you needed to do, as they did, was say that, you know, the Doctor is the last of the Time Lords. He comes from Gallifrey, which which was destroyed. And then, you know, your story goes on. And that sort of, that element of the storytelling informs the character. You know, he's, the, he's, he's you know, the last of his species. He's very sad. He's scarred and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I'm, I'm glad that they didn't go down the route of the reboot because... 
I mean, I mean, even in the 80s, when they were talking about it, the Doctor Who movie, it was a complete reboot. And for those of us who've read the the, the, the synopsis or synopsis in uh, in the Nth Doctor by Mark Lafissier, where the, you just got you know endless drafts of endless movie scripts, which basically said we're starting again, we're scrapping it all away. It's and those movies wouldn't have they, they, none of those treatments resonated with me uh, as much as the knowledge that the show as it stands now mm. is effectively a continuation from what began in 1963. When Philip C. Gall was looking at relaunching Doctor Who in America, some of the pictures that are in the uh, the regeneration book that he did with Gary Russell, when you read those, they're quite they are just throwing everything away and starting again where the Doctor's searching for his father who's called Barusa and all those sort of crazy crazy mm. ideas which again would have probably attracted a new fan who would have enjoyed it but to us old diehards would have yeah. had massive you know fits about it so I mean I can, I can understand creatively a, a, a writer wants to strike out on their own and doesn't perhaps doesn't want to feel weighed down by what has been done in the past mm. but I think that uh, it's to Russell T Davies credit uh, and the others around him that they were brave enough to say, no, we can make use of these elements. We can, this, is, this show is a continuation. We can make use of those elements to inform our storylines. So, yeah, you're right. They've, uh, I'm glad that they, uh, they didn't uh, go back to, to uh, Grand Zero and start again. So here's a question for you. For the next show runner, do they need to have that fan baggage to, to run Doctor Who? Um, well, it's hard, isn't it? I, I suppose... Mm. Well, first off, you want them to have experience in the television industry. And say someone like Anthony Horowitz, who um, has been bandied about in the last couple of days just before recording of this, he, he does have experience writing for television apart from his children's books. Hmm. Um, I think that you also want a showrunner who has some knowledge or, or memory of the show. I, Not to be weighed down by the past, but to, to know what the show is about to help inform their writing or help inform their direction mm. um but yeah i mean that's 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 uh, as with anything or everything it's a bit of both for me mm. what okay. about you i actually think that you don't necessarily need all that history to run a show like doctor who you just need to focus on really good stories mm. and if you i'm sure there's plenty of people on a production team who could become an unofficial continuity advisor like they had in the 80s to you know if they want to ask a question but as long as that continuity uh, doesn't start uh, permeating where it becomes the main focus of scripts like it was uh, during you know the mid the, the mid 80s i think you can get somebody in cold who has maybe a scant knowledge of it but understands how to run a show but also understands how to write a good script and also uh, give some really good ideas to other writers to get them to write good scripts and you know those other writers could drop bits and pieces in, but the showrunner doesn't really need to have a complete working knowledge like what we do. So, uh, Rob, what was your number three? Cliffhangers, Mark. Cliffhangers. Cliffhangers. It's fair to say that in the classic series with over seven hundred episodes, there were many, 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 many cliffhangers. Uh, so much so that at certain points they became pretty banal and predictable and, and less exciting than you would imagine. Trial of a Time Lord, we're looking well, at you. You stole the words <laughs> right out of my mouth. Where any number of crash zooms into Colin Baker's face substituted oh. for a cliffhanger. <laughs> Poor guy. Now, in with the new series, we have a situation where most of the episodes are standalone episodes, and we don't have the opportunity for uh, a cliffhanger, or the opportunity is uh, is rare. So to see, um, especially in the RTD uh, years, 
Uh, a couple of uh, really memorable cliffhangers just demonstrated to me that... Uh, I mean, they were, in terms of just watching the series, they were so memorable that they've actually made my top five. Now, the two that offer in my book anyway uh, is the reveal at the end of Army of Ghosts where there's the sphere uh, just sort of being monitored. And I had decided after Series 1 to avoid spoilers as much as possible. I During all of Series 1, it's on the internet, reading the British newspapers. I mean, The Sun basically gave the game away in the week before Eccleston's last episode. So I'd elected, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not going to watch uh, or read or listen to any sort of spoilers. I'm going to avoid the spoiler section on uh, Gallifrey Base. Uh, so when Army of Ghosts screened and I was watching it uh, in the evening... Uh, here in Australia, and it was building up and building up and building up, and there was the army of ghosts, and that looked really, that looked sort of interesting, I suppose. And then there was the final reveal where the sphere begins to open, and Murray Gold's music uh, crashes in, and the sense of anticipation, and then sort of jaw-dropping wonder when the Daleks emerge from the sphere, and you sort of, and like a real, like a like a, a decent cliffhanger, you're going, oh, what the hell has just happened here, and how are they going to fix this? How are they going to resolve it? And I was, it, it made me really eager to, to see the following week's episode. So that was, that's my, uh, you know, one part of my top uh, three moment. The other one is the cliffhanger to The Stolen Earth, where oh, yeah. uh, David Tennant and Billy Piper are running towards each other, and the mm-hmm. Dalek comes out of nowhere and shoots the Doctor. And, you know, they drag him back into the TARDIS, and it looks like it begins to regenerate. You, you sort of sit there. I was sitting there. I was going, and again, I hadn't you know, read any spoilers or anything like that. Um, and while The Stolen Earth and the episode that comes after it, um, is it Last of the Time Lords? No, it was um, Journey's End. Journey's End. Bad fan that I am. While those two uh, stories I'm not 100% on, the, the cliffhanger to Stolen Earth, where the Doctor is you know beginning to regenerate, and again, I was just left gobsmacked. Because I didn't know that this was going to happen, and I, you know, I remember, you know, emailing everyone, going, "Are they actually going to do this? Are they actually going to pull off the biggest surprise in the show's history and have Tenet sign off at the beginning of the next episode?" And for that week, you know, the, the anticipation was building, and mm. I was really looking forward to it. And then they completely screwed it up. <laughs> but up until that point, and Moffat screwed it up further. <laughs> Oh, don't, don't spoil it for me. <laughs> let it go. Let it go. But for that week, I, you know, I was I was young again. I was young and keen and anticipatory and, and really looking forward to it. And yeah. you know, I was I, I had I had my hat half off my head in in praise, and then it just had to be firmly clamped back. But for those that that six or seven days, I was really wrapped. I was really looking forward to you know how this was going to play out. So uh, that's my top uh, three uh, moment, the, the the way they've used uh, cliffhangers. They're few and far between now, and in yeah. recent years, they haven't been uh, as much chop as what I'd hoped, but those two particular cliffhangers I've really, really enjoyed. They're very memorable. I also enjoyed the uh, cliffhanger to Utopia and the sound of drums. Like As you said, it really ramped up the excitement. It's like, how are they going to get out of that? And then, of course, the, the climax episodes are complete shite. Uh, yes. you know, last of the Time Lords and, and Journey's End. So they build up fantastically, but unfortunately the payoffs don't um, don't pay off. Into my top three, just to shoehorn that in now that you've mentioned it, I mean, the yeah. whole build up to the end of uh, Utopia where, uh, you know, uh, Professor Yana is revealed yes. to be the master, spoilers, 
Or that, Missy. Yes. <laughs> just those those minutes as they trickle past and you suddenly... And the direction and the, and, the, and the editing is brilliant. I mean, how they build up anticipation mm. where, you know, the Doctor is sort of... Uh, Martha mentions the fob watch and he, the, his his face just, just, just transforms. And then the Master... Oh, sorry, Professor Yana is getting... You know, the, the, the drums are in his head and he's got the fob watch and then suddenly the Master comes in. Just for those two or three minutes where it's a classic series Master being portrayed by Derek Jacobi just sent me then and still sends me into raptures so even mm. though that's not a particular cliffhanger that's just a really memorable moment and then they screwed it up number two so mark what's your uh top two moment in the new series my number two it's the new series uh, way of attracting a new generation of viewers who will uh, look back on it in the, in the same way that we do the classic series and the fond rosy glow just talk about my cinema experience again it went to went to the cinemas and it was great to see the amount of kids in the audience and the amount of kids were dressing up and the couple had the sonic screwdrivers and, and the best thing is they didn't let the sonic screwdrivers go off during the during the screenings. So that was really good. Well done, parents, for teaching some manners. Or taking and, the batteries out. Exactly. And then walking out the cinemas and the kids are getting all excited talking about it and even my next-door neighbours across the road, their kids are into Doctor Who and they say, oh, you know, Mark, have you seen it? And I said, yes, I've seen a work print. <laughs> <laughs> but just they get really excited about it. And I've actually been lending them some of my old classic series shows uh, on DVD as well. And they, they've they been enjoying it. But they're always coming out and saying, oh, what do you think? What do you think? And, I'm, oh, of course, I always put a positive spin on it and go, yeah, it's great, kids. Even though when I haven't enjoyed bits and pieces of it. You know, you can go to bookshops and you have a look at the, the ABC shop. You know, they've got nice little, late, little Doctor Who displays there. And just the amount of kids that are surrounding those stalls and looking at the, the various bits of tat on sale, that's really pleasing to see. You know, it's attracting a new audience and it'll keep on going now. It'll, it'll go on for, for many years to come because it's been able to get that new uh, viewers ensnared in its net. And some of those, uh, some of those uh, new young fans, uh, this generation's versions of uh, Mark Gaddis and Paul Cornell, Gareth Roberts, Russell C. Davies, Stephen Moffat, out of this generation of kids, you're going to get you know creative types who will be inspired by the show to work in television, to work to, to be writers, to be creators, because the show does fire the imagination. And I mean, I'm, look, sometimes the storytelling on the show is not to my taste. I like a, a more it, towards the, the sort of the more adult, the darker, the edgier. But that would be to the detriment of 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 a, of a family of a young audience. And so I would never want to take that away from from, from a young audience that they, they, they would miss out on it because the show le- lends towards tastes that are, that are far too old for them. Mm. Um, I mean, I, my, my daughters, they um, every year they have book week at school and I know in the past, when, and they get dressed up as their favourite characters and they go, and I know in the past that young kids, some of the young kids who, who go and do the little parade uh, of, of characters from, you know, from books or from movies or from TVs, uh, TV uh, have dressed up in relation to Doctor Who. Now that didn't happen this year, but I know it's happened in the past, and I'm sure it's going to happen in the future. That uh, that that more and more kids uh, will have embraced it. And, you know, and some of those kids will grow out of it uh, when they hit ten or eleven or twelve and, and pick up other things. But you know, when they're fifteen or sixteen or seventeen, they'll come back to it. They'll come back to it. That's right, and it'll also inspire kids to become actors. I mean, inspire Peter Capaldi, didn't it? It did. It actually inspired Peter Capaldi to try and launch a coup against a you know a, <laughs> a nascent Doctor Who um, fan club in the early seventies. That 70s. is a great book. Have you have you read that? I have to get that. What's the book called, Mark? It's called The Official Doctor Who Fan Club Volumes One and Two by Keith Miller, 
Uh, you can get them on Lulu and just watch out for the next load of uh, discount uh, codes that come your way. Fantastic reading. And it's it's just hilarious the stuff about Capaldi, especially you know in light now that he's been cast as a doctor. Uh, and the great irony is that Keith Miller, the, the author of the, those two uh, books, his favourite film uh, is Local Hero. And he was having all these battles with Peter Capaldi at the time. But uh, Keith Miller was very gracious when Capaldi got announced. He was very happy for him. So uh, seek those books out because they're hilarious. What's your second entry? So in relation to uh, the writers of the anniversary specials for the series down the years, Mark, I've previously expressed some reservations about the quality of the writing or all the writers including uh, John Nathan Turner and David Roden yes happy 30th anniversary Bob Baker and Dave Martin I don't think they did as good a, good a job as they could have say with the three doctors uh, Terence Dix did a perfectly serviceable job, serviceable job on the five doctors given what he had to work with uh, as you've touched on Nathan Turner the, the uh, super hot <laughs> writing team of Nathan Turner and David Roden didn't quite come up to uh, scratch and of course nothing happened with the 40th anniversary and the 25th anniversary while Silver Nemesis is all I need to say so, it writing a fifty writing an anniversary story clearly uh, comes with some baggage and uh, burdens. I'm happy to say that Stephen Moffat was the writer of the fiftieth anniversary. I can't think of any other writer for the new series. Perhaps Russell T Davies, but he was out of the picture at that point. I can't think of any other writer for the new series who was best suited to writing Day of the Doctor. Moffat was nimble enough to be able to come up with a re- with a response to Christopher Eccleston not being in the uh, in the episode, and whatever you think of the War Doctor, uh, given the circumstances, I think Moffat did as good a job as he could, and in a sense, he gave voice to a large number of classic series fans through the War Doctor, looking at his uh, future incarnations and going, "What the hell is this?" But no, I I think that what the what the uh, what the fiftieth anniversary special needed was two things. It needed to be able to celebrate the show at the same time as telling an entertaining, fast-paced story. And I firmly believe that Moffat, of all the writers for the series, is perfectly capable of doing that. He can make your nods to the past, your kisses to the past. But he can, and we've seen it time and time again. He can write. He can write really well when the moment is upon him. And with Day of the Doctor, you can quibble about the Zygon's subplot, but it definitely was there to serve a particular purpose, and it it did that extremely well. But I walked away from Day of the Doctor feeling that, you know, we'd been part of a celebration of the series through, uh, through that 50th anniversary episode. I mean, you had nods to the past, there are visual elements, there were um, narrative elements, and it, but it also it embraced the the, the, the new series, the Time War, uh, uh, brought back Tenet, um, and and you know it, it actually it's actually the three Doctors done right in in mm. a sense. You, you I mean you had the War Doctor looking at his two successors, thinking what, what does the world come to, and you had you know the banter between Matt Smith and, and and David Tennant, which I think worked worked really well. So I firmly believe that you know my, my one of the highlights of the new series has been the Day of the Doctor, and that is in the lap of Stephen Moffat, who crafted you know a rollicking adventure that took the time to acknowledge the show's past and celebrate the show's past, and I'm glad that he was the writer on it. Also, a shout-out to the director of that story, Nick Curran. He did a bang-up job on that. Only person who could have done it as well would have been Graham Harper, but he is no longer in the picture. But uh, Nick Curran definitely gave it a flourish that uh, Peter Moffat could never do. So, Mark, we've now reached the, uh, the moment, the denouement. What is your number one pick? 
It's given us something new to talk about. It's reinvigorated fandom. It's given us something new to debate. Let's be honest, there's only so many times you can debate and talk about episodes and stories such as Celestial Toymaker, The Daleks, and any any other number of classic series shows. It's giving us something new to, to talk about. And now with technology, we can hear other people's opinions pretty much instantaneous. And whether you agree with them or not, they're still out there. And there's various methods that, that people can communicate, either via Twitter or Facebook or, you know, this medium that we're doing now. So that's been a massive positive to me. And look, as we said earlier in the podcast, there are opinions I don't agree with or don't really understand, to be perfectly honest. But at least they're an opinion. That's true. As we've just touched on before, there's a, there's a whole new community uh, that's built up around the show. And, um, you know, what do communities do? But they, they argue and they debate and they discuss and they share and they enjoy. And, yes. um, you know, there are, there are people out there who would never have been brought together if it weren't for the new series. I don't think I'm exaggerating uh, at all. Um, you know, there are, there are communities that have built up around podcasts. There are people who follow particular writers uh, on their blogs who write about who write very well and incisively about Doctor Who. Mm. Uh, there are communities on forums. And there are people who follow each other on Twitter endlessly. Um, it's just uh, the, the conversation never ceases about Doctor Who. And or it's missing a, episodes. Or missing, <laughs> or missing episodes. It's a, it's a, it's a global conversation. It's just, it's just such a, an enriching aspect of a lot of people's lives. It's sometimes, uh, it, you know, it's not the overwhelming aspect of my life. I mean, I have other, other interests and, and whatever. But, I mean, you know, the, the show ties me to a number of people who I consider to be, you know, really good friends, lifelong friends, I mean, it's brought me and you together, Mark, in this podcast. So it's it's just a, it's just a wonderful, enriching experience. What about you, Rob? What takes your top spot? Well, my top spot uh, about the new series is paradoxically uh, a, a nostalgic one. During the seventies, when Doctor Who was on constant rerun in, in uh, on the ABC here in Australia, I was I, I grew up with the show. I grew up with John Pertwee, but I come of age. As a as a as a fan, you know, I don't know that there were anything anything like a fan back in back in the seventies, but I grew up and I grew up under Tom Baker, and I came of age under Tom Baker, and I I mean I have wonderful, rich memories of watching Tom Baker. I mean coming home from piano practice and watching the last five minutes of Mask of a Mandragora on a Tuesday night in the late seventies uh, during winter, or eating a plate of spaghetti on my birthday while watching uh, the Androids of Tara. And these uh, with family, and these are all memories tied in with Tom Baker. You know, Genesis of the Daleks. These are just wonderful images that um, that are tied to one man and his electric and just wonderful portrayal, and the stories that were built around him. I mean, Ark in Space, Noah's you know transformation and all that sort of thing. The horror of that. I, I mean, it's all tied into the Tom Baker era. So at near the end of Day of the Doctor, where you've been, you know, you've been, it's the, the story has gone up and gone up and gone up and gone up. And then, you know, Capaldi's come through and you've gone, oh, my God, it's Capaldi. And uh, and then the story's on, on the down, on the down slope. And it's, 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 you, know, you can sense it's coming to an end. And, you know, uh, the Matt Smith Doctor is there and he's a bit introspective. He's sort of pleased with himself that things have, have turned out right. And, you know, the guilt of the time war doesn't necessarily lie on his shoulders anymore. It's 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 something that can be lifted, and he can he's he, he can look to the future, look to the future, and find Gallifrey and all that sort of thing. And then that warm brown, rich voice sort of rings out. And in the audience that I was uh, with at the cinema, it was almost like an electric shock 
had gone through the seats and into all the participants who were there. And, you know, Matt Smith turns around and the camera turns around and it's Tom Baker. And for some reason, my voice is almost breaking here. I don't know why. <laughs> it's you. Suddenly, I was six again and sitting in front of my television with my family or, you know, at home. And it's just all those warm memories of being a child again. And there's Tom Baker. And it's just a, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Really, I mean, I'm, I'm choking up a little bit here speaking about it. And this is like six months ago when I saw it. And to see Tom Baker there, and, you know, he's, he's, he was what, 79 or almost 80 at that point. And, you know, you think, oh, you know, time marches on for everyone. He's going to be gone soon. But to see him here and to, to see him given that opportunity to shine right at the very end, to be emblematic and to carry, you know, the classic series in this episode, to be that exemplar of the classic series. Now, he's not playing the fourth Doctor, but he's Tom Baker. And to a, you know, to a certain fan or to a certain generation of fans, he is and always will be the Doctor. And to see him in Day of the Doctor is my, you know, my abiding memory of that episode. And it is easily, easily the, 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 the major memory, the, the major high point of the new series for me. All right, I've gained control of my emotions once again. I think it's time for some letters, Mark. You've got mail. Mark, we've received a tweet uh, from uh, a new Twitter follower, Micaiah McLaughlin. Hello, Micaiah. I hope I'm pronouncing your first name correctly. If not, please tweet me and admonish me severely. Uh, Micaiah tweets, I know there's many who diss this episode, but I really liked Asylum of the Daleks. It was so emotional. I'm a sucker for that. And that was... uh, we tweeted um, uh, to all our followers uh, which Dalek a story from the new series was their favourite and why. So um, there's a lot of love. Uh, well, there's a, a certainly appreciation for Asylum of the Daleks. Uh, were there any other tweets, Matt? Uh, we had one from somebody called DK Wedgetail. Uh, he says, Stolen Earth, probably. Parting of the Ways and Dalek, the only ones remotely in contention. How do you think the new series has uh, dealt with the Daleks, Matt? Some have been really, really good. And some have been really, really bad. And uh, I think Asylum of the Daleks, for me, sort of is in the middle of that uh, of that spectrum, where in the bottom end is more uh, your Daleks of Manhattan and Victory of the Daleks. Sometimes it feels like it's the law of diminishing returns, isn't it? I mean, I, I, yeah. they, they, they do come back basically every year, don't they? Yeah, give them a rest. It must be a contracted obligation with Terry Nation's estate to I, bring it back every year. I just think just give them a rest for a couple of years. Yeah, I think that I certainly heard that early on that um, there was an agreement that they, the Daleks come back every year, and that if they don't come back every year, there's a renegotiation. I'm sure that you know there may be higher fees to pay for it. Yeah, it look familiar. What is it? Uh, familiarity breeds contempt. Is well, less less is more, isn't it? Really? Yes, yes. And I mean, I, you can see um, that they were trying to do something different with Into the Dalek. Uh, well, you know, granted it was similar to Dalek. The story Dalek, but um, uh, I, you know, I'd like to see a Dalek story where they they sort of go back to how they you know were shown in say Power of the Daleks, where they are creepy and sinister and engaging in subterfuge. Yes, and I know that they tried to do that in Victory of the Daleks, but Badly. they screwed they screwed that up. Yeah, but there's there, there is a 
there, there, there's an opportunity there to portray them differently. If you're going to have to bring it back every year, be a you know try something different. Now into the Dalek, yes, they're trying something different. Uh, but if they're going to go, if they're going to do that, then you know keep on trying something different because the same old stories thrown up with Daleks in them, it, it's just laborious and tiring. Yes, maybe need to get somebody outside of the uh, current Who writing circle to have a think about an idea or two for that. Now we received another tweet from a new uh, follower, a Zoe Muir or Muir. Hello, Zoe. Thank you for uh, following us, and thank you for your message. Uh, Zoe wrote, and I believe this was in uh, response to Deep Breath. So it seemed like the Doctor was hinting that he subconsciously chooses what his regeneration face looks like, and that he recognises this new face. Maybe it will turn out that Capaldi's character from the fires of Pompeii isn't the Doctor, but that the new Doctor chose to look like him because he was brave and courageous. Well, I, I think they're probably leaning towards that because Moffat has said that uh, there will be some sort of explanation for why the Twelfth Doctor looks like uh, the, one of the uh, well, his character from uh, the Fires of Pompeii. Mm. I'm not really sure why you would need to do that. I hope it's not a main element of a story or you know the, the season as such. Um, I did uh, just on the on the topic of Fires of Pompeii and, and Rome. Someone I remember re- I remember reading uh, a week or two back. Someone making the point that in Day of the Doctor, Clara is uh, writing a quote from the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius on the blackboard, and I believe it has to do something with uh, something, 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 being a good man or something like that. The, the, the words, a good man. And of course, that leads directly to uh, the discussion that the Doctor and Clara have in Into the Dalek, where the Doctor asks Clara, uh, is he a good man? So there's, there's, a, uh, there's obviously, there's definitely one of the themes running through the series uh, this current series is the doctor wrestling with who he has become uh, okay. since since he regenerated so i imagine along with you know the danny pink being a soldier and the doctor's uh, strange dislike of soldiers uh and also the missy uh, overarching arc theme uh, that will be addressed as the i think as the series progresses and the retconning of why the sixth doctor looked like maxwell from arkham infinity <laughs> Look forward to that as well. Because uh, Colin Baker told good jokes at a wedding. <laughs> yes, enough said. We've got a letter here from Angry of Mayfair. And for those <laughs> of you who watched uh, the Kenny Everett video show... Rest uh, in peace, Kenny. <laughs> I'm just laughing already, sorry. I'm having many good memories of the Kenny Everett video show. What did he say? It's not funny at all. <laughs> anyway. He says, Angry says, uh, Dear 42 to Doomsday... Whilst listening to your latest podcast, I was appalled, all in uppercase, to hear you say that character-driven arcs-based series were a 1990s American invention. Both Babylon 5's JMS and Buffy the Vampire Slayer's Joss Whedon openly credit Blake Seven as being the antecedent for this form of TV writing. I never expected to hear such American imperialistic revisionism from you, but I guess the former colonies must stick together. Yours sincerely... Angry of Mayfair. Thank you, Angry. Well, you know, Angry is Angry of Mayfair is correct. I um, was speaking off the cuff when I did uh, mention, or neglected to mention, uh, Blake Seven as being the progenitor of the uh, the arc based storytelling, but uh, and the was, liberator and the, <laughs> the liberator. What was the what was the other ship after the liberator? Liberator. The liberator was destroyed. Scorpio? 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 I, I don't know. Do you know what? I, I've just finished watching The West Wing. I'm actually thinking about going to watch Blake 7 back from the beginning. Ooh, that I will be, I, that'll be a culture shock, won't it? 
It will be. I'm currently um, stuck on episode one of series three. How long have you been stuck on that? Uh, about 18 months. Okay, so it's going well for you then. Well, it went well for the first uh, two series. It was I bolted through those and then... Mm. Uh, it's a it's a real uh, change in series three, Black Seven. So maybe we should do a Black Seven podcast, Mark. No. Okay. So. <laughs> let... <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, we so... have um, a couple of letters here. Yes. Let uh, let us look at these letters. You can hear me fumbling through uh, this. Dave from Melbourne writes: Congratulations on your twenty first episode. Uh, it was great. Now, when I listened to the first part, brutal but a good kind of brutal. I think I was uh, laying the hammer down on the three doctors. Uh, so I think we both were. I think, yeah, they would, we were sparing no uh, uh, punishing blow. So uh, Dave goes on to say, what I mean is your take on the three, four doctors was different to the usual fluffy comments you get. So a refreshing change that was interesting to listen to, even if it did feel like you were taking a sledgehammer to my childhood. As always, didn't agree with all of your points. I especially think you were too hard on Hartnell who, in my opinion, gives a commanding performance in Three Doctors, even if physically limited. But once again, you engage me, I laugh at the right places, and that's what it makes a good podcast. Thank you very much, Dave. Dave goes on to say, uh, one minor point, wasn't the birthday cake scene in Stones of Blood meant to be for the 500th episode and not the 15th anniversary? I think he's right. I think Dave is... Dave's our guru, I think, going forward, mm. uh, for any continuity points. I was very interested to hear JR's letter on the latest podcast noting his thoughts on Caves of Androzani. I agree in part with J.R. that whilst it's a very good story, it's not the best story ever. Personally, I have it 18th on my list overall, and third of the stories from the 1980s, below Planet of Fire and Survival. I have Planet of Fire very high too, but it's not for the reasons that Dave uh, suggests. Uh, <laughs> moving right along. However, J.R.'s comment that Caves is on par with Aliens of London at first had me, turning the page here, had me aghast with disbelief. But reflecting further, I understand where J.R. is coming from and accept that he's looking for something different in Doctor Who to me. Basically, I like my Doctor Who drier and po-faced. I enjoy seasons like 7, 18 and 21 that are like a nice scotch. I think J.R. prefers a fruity Chardonnay. I call this, and Dave's dubbed this, the Strax Division. (laughs) But what matters is that it's interesting to hear different points of view and appreciate better the broad appeal of Doctor Who. That said, I agree 100% with Rob on Moffat's rewriting of the Doctor's Regenerations. Utter nonsense. Keep up the good work. Dave from Melbourne. Thank you, Dave. I do think you are being overly generous regarding Hartnell's performance, calling it uh, commanding. He's trying to interact with his fellow Time Lords. He's looking one way, and the Time Lords are looking completely a different way. He's got no idea what's going on, the poor thing. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Now, we've received an email from JR Southall of the Blue Box Podcast and Starburst. And Uh, Fruity Chardonnay lover, apparently. Well, whatever floats his boat, I suppose, and apparently it's a lake of Fruity Chardonnay. (laughs) Hey guys, just listened to the latest episode and it was just as entertaining and insightful a listen as usual. However, here's my thinking on the prospect of a Doctor Who movie. I agree with Rob that it seems almost bound to happen at this point. Marvel Studios are dominating the movie industry at the moment by managing to keep a number of plates spinning concurrently with one another. However, if the BBC were to attempt to make a movie with whoever the incumbent Doctor is, they'd be forced to drop a plate before they even started by creating a year's gap in the production schedule of the television series. On the other hand, if the movie were to feature an alternative, unnumbered incarnation of the Doctor, and this would present them with the opportunity to cast anyone they liked in the part, for example, someone who wouldn't be prepared to devote the months and years it would take to do a television version, the two strands of Doctor Who would be able to run simultaneously with one another, enabling both to gain popularity and promotion from the other as a result. So it's my feeling that, in spite of what anyone connected with television Doctor Who might say, 
the BBC would relish the idea of running both franchises at once. And therefore, the movie Doctor Who would be far more likely to be an actor not connected with the television series. Keep up the good work. JR from Blue Box Podcast. Now, actually, JR makes a good point, And I've often thought, I mean, there's been an undercurrent in some aspects of fandom. Why can't we have Paul McGann come back as the Eighth Doctor in a separate series running parallel with the TV, with the regular run of the TV series? And uh, budget budgeting aside, um, I would I would you know love to have something like that. That you know you'd have Paul McGann come back in a limited run, you know, specials through the year that would complement the new series. But you know, I don't think ideally, I don't think that's going to happen. JR's idea about having a movie doctor and a TV doctor, you know, sort of running concurrently, I suppose, makes a lot more sense. It would enable the BBC to, you know, maintain the yearly output of the show with an actor prepared to commit. But also, you'd have the opportunity to to, to go, you know, venture into the movie uh, movie space and, uh, and 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 do that sort of thing and and, and find an actor of sufficient caliber and popularity to help the project, uh, you know, move forward. But whether that actually happens or not uh, is hard to say. But, you know, as we discussed before, I think a movie, a Doctor Who movie, is, is on the cards. Whether it's sooner rather than later, I'm not quite sure. But it just seems, given the worldwide popularity of the show at the moment, that a appropriately budgeted show that's realistic in its ambitions, uh, you know, c- can do well uh, at the box office. So, John Hurt, wait for the call. Mark, just to wrap things up, what have you been watching? Well, I've uh, been a lucky recipient of a review copy of the 50th anniversary set, Rob. So have I, Mark. So I've been working my way through that. It's lovely to have all the episodes and all the extras that uh, were released during that time and all the specials and things in one complete set. I'm still a bit perplexed why I named The Doctor was included on it as well. The the main feature I was looking forward to seeing was the the behind-the-scenes read-through of the 50th anniversary celebration, which went for about 15 minutes. You know, on the Five Doctors DVD, there was a special called A Celebration. It was hosted by Colin Baker. went through all the events of the 20th anniversary year. What they should have done was got Ed Stradling and the gang back together to do a similar documentary to complement the 50th anniversary set. Because that's what it's missing. That's a pity then. I suppose when you have fans involved in doing those sort of, uh, you know, look-backs or look-behind-the-scenes... You get a different perspective from sort of an industry professional brought in to do sort of the same sort of thing. Mm. I think you get a different tone and uh, appreciation of what they're uh, what they're discussing. The feature they've put on is very similar. To what's the Doctor Extra is you know, Lola Entertainment, Jazzy. Hey, this is what's going on. It's all positive and everything like that, which is which is fine. But I suppose as a, a reminder of the whole 50th anniversary celebrations, the Ultimate Guide doesn't cut it. I would have liked to see in a you know a half an hour, forty-five minute documentary on all the events that were happening in the, in the 50th anniversary, and and get a bit more of a, a background into the making of Day of the Doctor because classic series fans were spoiled on the DVDs in terms of the making of. It would have been nice to have a really good, decent behind-the-scenes documentary for that story. As I said, it's very nice to have everything all together in one box, especially with Day of the Doctor cinema introductions are all there, the Strax one and the Doctor's one. So yeah, so it's pretty comprehensive, you would say. So have you watched it yet? No, I only received it. For- from um, uh, my supplier in the last uh, couple of days, I've, I've I've got a number of things that I'm reviewing for Impulse Gamer site. Uh, one of those I'm currently looking at is a, a 
recent production of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, so <laughs> I'll eventually, once I've plowed through that, I'll eventually get onto it uh, just to review it. But um, Not the Baz Luhrmann one. No, no, it's a. I think it's one from last year. Uh, it has um, a number of well-known Hollywood actors, but the two leads are unknown to me. And it makes the curious choice of keeping some of Shakespeare's language and then omitting it entirely and replacing it with their own. So I'm not quite sure what the point of doing that was. Yeah, no, I'll be getting on to um, the, uh, the 15th anniversary set in due course just to review it. Um, I'm actually looking forward to sort of seeing... I mean, because Moffat did, um, you know, name night day time i think as a sort of you know quadrilogy for which is a very ugly word as sort of a linked a series of stories building up anyway to the regeneration so mm. uh i'll look forward to that but i suppose since i've you know seen those more recently i'll be looking at the um the behind the behind the scenes stuff uh, because i i look i watch very little of that at around the time of the anniversary so this is a good opportunity to catch up yeah also, I had a look at the Doctor Who, The Ultimate Time Lord, and Doctor Who, The Ultimate Companion, uh, BBC America documentaries as well. well they, uh, how do they extend up to The Ultimate Guide, uh, Mark? Uh, about the same, really. Uh, that bad. Look, yeah. <laughs> look, they're okay. I mean, Peter Davison's a host of these documentaries, mm-hmm. and if he ever needs a new gig, I reckon he'd make a very good host for Grand Designs. If Kevin McLeod wants to give up the gig, get Davison involved, because he has a, a quite a good uh, presenting style. Uh, it's nice to see on the Ultimate Companion they got Janet Fielding and Sarah Sutton uh, in there to sort of talk about the the companions as how, how they see them and of course for the Ultimate Time Lord they had to go and speak to another psychologist to get what traits the Doctor should be haven't they learnt from the Melvin Bragg documentary of 1977 don't get one in it's dull <laughs> they're just very light fluffy pieces and uh, I'm sure they'll be on the on a DVD coming to you soon sometime and there's another one called doctor who earth conquest i believe and rob lloyd uh is featuring on it so or source that from somewhere now mark i've uh, not had an opportunity to watch uh, anything doctor who related recently but uh i was in my garage uh sunday afternoon shifting boxes of books around let me let me just say people that if you've been collecting books for as long as i have which is nigh on 35 years you need to at some point look in the mirror and go just stop because having 60 boxes of books totaling perhaps close to 4,000 volumes of just stuff and magazines and bits of paper I found my yearbook from 1988 for God's sake I mean it's just time to clear out so just don't hang on to these things just move on lighten your life and I think I may be doing that sometime in the near future anyway so I was looking through some boxes and I came across a magazine, a Doctor Who fanzine, an Australian Doctor Who fanzine called Zorinza. And um, I, I uh, purchased uh, most of them uh, back uh, in the early 2000s and then promptly sold them to one of the gentlemen who was doing the uh, info text on the DVD uh, releases. Uh, I think I remember his name, but of course I'm not going to mention who it is. So he, he now has, he must have a vast collection of fanzines because I believe he was buying them up uh, even when he was buying them from me. Uh, and this one is the... It's a Zorinza special. It's a complete review of the Colin Baker era. And there's a black and white photo of Colin Baker in his suit, smiling uh, out of the picture. If uh, Colin Baker actually knew what was inside the magazine, he certainly wouldn't be uh, smiling. <laughs> because this um, this fanzine, which is issues 29, 30, and 31, it was fairly infrequent, is a 74-page rant. Now, everyone's entitled to their opinion. There's no doubting that. But this is a massive screed 
against the Colin Baker era, against John Nathan Turner, it is the most magnificently overwritten piece of Doctor Who uh, uh, examination, I suppose you'd say, that you will ever likely come across. And sadly, it's no longer available. I'll just read out a paragraph. It's from a review of The Two Doctors. I'm not going to mention the the writer. Is it perfectly entitled to his opinion? You know, I, uh, I've i got no animus against him or anything like that. I mean, I'm a fan of the Colin Baker era, but I can understand where he's coming from. But let me read this this out. Again, it's from the review of The Two Doctors. There followed the callous bone-crunching murder of the blind Donna Arana, the ghastly sequence where Shockeye caught, killed, and tore at the throat of a passing rat. And in brackets, rip-off city yet again, this time from the TV series V. Shockeye's attack on Perry, the stabbing of Stike's leg, the murder of an innocent truck driver, the acid grenade attack on Stike and his eventual agony-ridden death after the explosion of the time capsule, the cold-blooded and brutally realistic murder of Oscar, the display of the amputated Centauran leg, the slicing of Colin Baker's knee and Chassine's licking up of the spilt blood, all were offensive and repellent examples of a totally excessive and unwarranted sensationalistic violence. Now, that's gold, people. That is utter, utter gold. I may spend the rest of the year just dipping into this and reading choice cuts because it's just quite the most astounding document uh, (laughs) related to the series. And I take my hat off to the writer because for someone to be able to write this much, this must be 20 or 30,000 words of distaste, of dislike, of hate, of just, you know, overbearing, I don't like this. It's magnificent, and it's just it's just a wonderful, wonderful document. Wonderful. I think for our next episode, we should do a drag from the archives on on that particular magazine. And also, I've been going through my DWBs as well and picking up some uh, gold from that sort of same era. Yeah, I think next episode. Look, we don't dredge up the past. It's happened. It's it's been and gone. But uh, some of the the fan commentary around that time was quite um... spectacular. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's, that's one way to put it, yes. Special. Special. So thank you everyone for downloading and listening to us wax lyrical about our top five things we love about the news series. If you want to get in touch with us, listen to the very end of the podcast and all the details are there. And if you want to subscribe to us, you can do so via iTunes, Player FM or Stitcher.com. We'd love to hear from you, so drop us a line via our Gmail, Twitter and Facebook accounts as well and to finish up i've been stike's amputated leg and i've been engaged in an orgiastic frenzy of totally excessive and unwarranted sensationalistic violence we'll see you next time bye bye you have been listening to another installment of 42 to doomsday the doctor who podcast hosted by mark and rob if you'd like to contact us please do so via our twitter account at 42 to doomsday email us at 42 to doomsday at gmail.com and find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash 42 to doomsday and until we meet again may your doctor who be good doctor who